a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Well, scientists from the National Institutes of Health are getting royalty payments from pharmaceutical companies and other private companies. Uh, it's a practice that's happened for decades. Uh, no accusations of any wrongdoing other than, are we doing this the wrong way? Now there's a new push to open the book so we can see who's getting paid for what and where those conflicts of interest might be. Really pleased to have joining us on the program today, Adam Angievsky, uh, who is the CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com, a nonprofit that investigates government spending at every level. Uh, and uh, we are a group that believes in transparency and shining light is the, uh, the best disinfectant. And uh, Adam, thanks for joining us today. Well, it's great to be on the program, Boyd. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, wonderful. Well, let's dive into this uh, because this is one of those areas where, again, as long as we've got transparency, we can work it through. But kind of give us how this came to your attention uh, and what is it actually that you're looking at? Well, we had noticed that back all the way back in 2005, so 17 years ago, that's the last time tra- there was transparency on the Institute of on the National Institutes of Health (NIH) on their royalty database. Here's what it is. It is payments from third parties, think pharmaceutical companies, back into the agency at NIH and at 1,700 scientists. And so the payments enrich the agency and its scientists. Every single one of those payments could be a conflict of interest. So we filed a Freedom of Information Act request for the database. This was eight months ago. NIH refused to even acknowledge it. They never responded. So we sued them with Judicial Watch in federal court. And the case moved quickly. We won an unjudicially mandated production. NIH admitted to holding 3,000 pages. Nobody knew the size and scope of this practice. Turns out we're able to estimate now it's $350 million that flowed back into the agency from, think, Big Pharma Mm. over the course of the last 10 years. And its leaders were getting the royalties as well, which calls into question the whole program of giving royalties. Because, Boyd, as you know, every year NIH doles out $32 billion in grants. That's taxpayer money to the entire industry. Now we know that every 10 years, hundreds of millions of dollars is flowing back the other way, enriching the scientists, its leadership, and NIH itself. Uh, so many thoughts. So many thoughts. <laughs> uh, so, so as we look at this, uh, and again, I think for – for the average listener, for most of us sitting here, just that just doesn't sound right. That doesn't smell right. That doesn't taste right, uh, probably because it's not right. Uh, so how, how do we get to that kind of transparency where, where we can at least know, okay, this, this pharmaceutical company is giving royalties back to this person who works at the National Institute of Health. 
they maybe have a little bit of an incentive to you know push that particular procedure or that particular remedy for something. Uh, how do we actually get to that point? So the only way to get to that point, Boyd, it's an excellent question, is quite simply to be able to follow the money. So I can tell you on top line numbers that $350 million over 10 years was the gross amount of the royalty payments. But here's the thing. And I, and I can also tell you that there's 1,700 scientists' names in the database. But what I can't tell you is how much each individual scientist, including Fauci and the former head of NIH, Francis Collins, received. I can count the number of royalty payments, but they blacked out, they redacted the amount of the payment. And furthermore, they blacked out and redacted the third-party payer. So if it's a pharmaceutical company, I cannot tell you the name. We don't know who paid $350 million worth of royalty payments. Wow. All right. Now, we, we know that this was the subject of a congressional hearing this month. Uh, did we learn anything from this, or was this more uh, not a hearing, uh, more just a speaking from uh, members of Congress sitting on the dais? Well, so 36 hours after our report launched at OpenTheBooks.com, it led to five minutes with the acting director, Lawrence Tabak, in the hot seat, five minutes of questioning about these royalty payments. And finally, at minute four, he confessed that every single one of those payments could have the appearance of a conflict of interest. Exactly what we're saying. So we've called on the National Institutes of Health to open the books to show us exactly who's paying how much to each of the scientists. It is the only fair way to debate this issue. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the what are the next steps? Uh, what what happens next in terms of actually getting the books open uh, so we can actually see what's going on, how the money's flowing? As you said, following the money usually gets us to the right space in terms of what is actually going on in terms of influence peddling or, uh, you know, the wealthy and the well-connected getting more wealthy and more well-connected through these kinds of processes. Exactly. So we're going back into court. Our lawyers are judicial watch and we're going back in to unredact all the redactions. And and that should be a knockdown, drag out fight because NIH is certainly acting like they have a lot to hide in the in the congressional hearing. The acting director at Lawrence Tabak, he said that there's nothing to be concerned about because we have firewalls. (laughs) I mean, I'm not buying it. Three hundred and fifty million dollars over 10 years enriching the agency who has a vested interest in keeping hundreds of millions of dollars flowing. And, and they dole out $32 billion a year in grants. I want to see who's paying the royalties. We already have captured who's getting the grants. I want to put the two databases together. That's right. Yeah, that is the ultimate. And if, if we can connect those dots, uh, the magic of transparency will take place. And we can do it. Our auditors at OpenTheBooks.com, we are forensic auditors. We are data scientists. Let me tell you, even to get the top-line numbers – off of these horribly redacted production from the National Institutes of Health, took our data scientists. If we didn't employ data scientists, I wouldn't even have this story mm. for you here today, Boyd. Wow. Wow. That is uh, that is just stunning. Uh, and again, this is one of those, uh, we started the show today talking about trust in institutions of government. And this is one of those things that just undermines trust, uh, where there just seems to be uh, this kind of collusion. Uh, and again, we don't know who did what, 
many of those should be, you know, could be absolutely straight up, right on. But we we have to know. And in the absence of that, that you, trust continues to erode. Do you have time for an example? Please. Great. So back in 2005, as I mentioned, the Associated Press got the whole unredacted database so they could follow the money. And right off the top, they exposed a scandal. And it was Dr. Anthony Fauci in 2005. They discovered he received $45,000 worth of royalty payments for an experimental age drug, a drug that was funded with $36 million of U.S. taxpayer money. Fauci's the head of an institute at NIH, obviously very powerful, can direct funding. His name's on the patent. He's receiving royalties as the U.S. taxpayer funded this thing for $36 million. And even after, it was, uh, even after he was receiving royalties, taxpayer money continued to flow to continue to enhance the drug. So Fauci up front admitted that it was a conflict of interest, and he said he would donate. Trust me, I'll donate the payments, the royalty payments to charity. That was the answer. Wow. That uh, that is stunning. And so where do we go from here? What should we be watching for uh, in the coming months? So we were able to forecast 350 million over a 10 year period because NIH has produced only 1200 pages out of the 3000 pages. We're getting 300 a month. And on that basis, we're able to forecast the largesse. Every single month, we get new production, 300 new pages, and we're going to be able to, to expose a new investigation on that production every month. So stay tuned. These things, we've put together some of these preliminary numbers on what we can figure out. It is absolutely stunning what's going on in this program, and it's all funded by your tax dollars at NIH. It's a federal agency. They're running this program. It's absolutely stunning. Wow. Adam Angievsky is the CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. This is an important conversation in transparency uh, and what happens in this. Uh, Adam, we'll have you back as this continues to emerge. But thanks for joining us today and giving, this, giving us the update. Thank you, Boyd. All right. Uh, that is a man. That is a head scratcher for me. Uh, that is one of those things that undermines trust. If you have someone who is over an agency directing billions of dollars in research to pharmaceutical companies and then is getting royalties back uh, on those same drugs and medications. That's a trust problem. we got to get it right. All right, we'll step aside for Top of the Hour News. Much more to come. Hour number two of Inside Sources coming up on KSL News Radio. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. One of the things that I think we've lost in our culture today, it is the art of the nuance. We're so obsessed with instant certainty that we have to express that hot take in an instant uh, or just after we've listened to uh, one segment of radio or uh, a segment of cable news. And we have this really weird and unhealthy belief that Instant certainty is the answer that somehow uh, striving to get to the discernment part of questions and dealing with the the complexities and the nuance of things. Somehow that's weak or wishy-washy. Really interesting. uh, There's a uh, an article that was published back in 2018. It's been making the rounds again on social media and was uh, brought to my attention. It's such a great example, I think, of how we need to look at things. Uh, And again, we're going to use a specific example, and I'm going to ask you to suspend your instant certainty and judgment 
to just look at the process. We've been talking about process today in terms of our thinking. And so we're going to set aside the debate about the issue and we're going to look at the process of how do we have conversations about all kinds of issues. So back in 2018 uh, in The Atlantic, there was uh, an article uh, about a Christian musician, Lauren Daigle, uh, and the art, the lost art of discernment. And so here's how the issue played out, and then let's get into the principles. So the issue was, as a Christian musician, uh, Lauren Daigle had gone on the Ellen DeGeneres show, and there was an uproar by some in Christian circles that she would go on such a show. Of course, Ellen DeGeneres being uh, an openly gay woman, uh, there were some who said that was just not right, that was dancing with the devil, and on and on the judgment and the outroar went. And it was interesting, in response to that, uh, Lauren Daigle said something that I think is really significant. She says, I think the second we start drawing lines around which people we're able to approach and which we aren't, We've already completely missed the heart of God. I don't have all the answers in life. I'm definitely not going to act like I do. But the one thing that I know for sure is I can't choose who I'm supposed to be kind to and who I'm supposed to show love to and who I'm not. I think that's an important phrasing and framing in terms of the principle we got to be looking at. And again, how do we get past the headlines? How do we get past the instant certainty and have a different kind of conversation. And so you can go all down the issue of the LGBTQ community and different religious sects in terms of doctrine or philosophy or belief. And and that is fine. The interesting thing to me is that the further this thing played out, the more it was expected that this musician had to be instantly certain of everything, that there was no room for her to say, well, I have a question about that, or I have a question about this, uh, or I'm working through this, or I'm studying this. And the interesting thing to me is, as I look at the, the world's major religious organizations and communities, they they put a lot of value on the spiritual discipline of discernment. Why? Because it's hard and because it takes time. Can't be done quickly. Can't be done in a nanosecond. And why we expect our public figures to have an instant hot take on some complicated issue. And then they have to tweet about it. They have to talk about it. They have to post about it. Uh, and be absolutely certain about it with no margin of error and no path to be able to change their position. Now, really interesting in the Atlantic piece, it said that the early Christian church strove to practice discernment with patience. When a contentious issue arose, leaders would be summoned from around the globe, which think about that (laughs) in those days, that was a very time consuming task. And so councils would be called uh, anywhere from the 4th to the 8th centuries to resolve disagreements and consider how Christian teaching should be understood in light of current events. And so discernment was a slow process. It could take years, years of debate and contemplation. And it almost always required the participation and input 
from a broad community before any type of decision was made. Which is why our coalitions are so important. Building bridges is so important. Because if you really want to get to discernment, it takes time and it takes input from across the spectrum. Uh, In the early centuries, uh, even when a verdict was reached, the dissenting opinions were, were heard rather than stifled. And so rather than trying to establish what something is or is not over the course of a seven-minute radio or TV segment without really digging into the complex you know, topics, the far-reaching consequences, is, is just such a major miss. And so here's the principle that I want to get to. Uh, we've even proven in the state of U- Utah, y- you can balance so many things. We are so set up for these fake fights and false choices. And surely the issues of the LGBTQ community and those uh, of religious faith communities can be compatible. And there's a way to have that conversation. There's a way to build those bridges. And so here's the principle that I think we have to get to, that each of us have to get to in order to get to that kind of discernment. And so this goes, uh, this goes all the way back to a 6th century theologian. This was included in the Atlantic piece, uh, John Climacus. And he wrote this, From humility comes discernment. From discernment comes insight. And from insight comes foresight. And who would not run this fine race of obedience when such blessings are ahead of him? Okay, so break that down. (laughs) Humility is where we have to begin, not instant certainty. Instant certainty is the opposite of humility. And you have to be able to utter what I think are some of the, probably the three most important words in any kind of conversation about policy or what's going on in our communities. I don't know. If you can have the humility to be able to say, I don't know, that's a heck of a place to start. Uh, I think it is a place to start. So from humility comes discernment. And then from discernment comes insight. So we start to look at things differently. We stay curious. We explore all the possibilities and all the nuances that are contained outside of the headline, outside of the clickbait, outside of the rant or the rage. It's that insight. I said earlier on the program today, anybody can incite an argument. Very few can add insight to a conversation. So whether you're willing to go for the I-N-C-I-T-E, insight, the argument, to foment more the anger, fear, and frustration, or you're willing to be humble enough, discerning enough, to produce the insight, I-N-S-I-G-H-T, then, and only then, can you get to foresight. Some of the greatest leaders I have seen are those who I say can see around corners and far ahead. And the reason they have that kind of foresight is because they have paid the price to get the insight and the discernment that begins with humility. 
And so this was a really interesting conversation and uh, one that was raised to us. And I thought, you know what, that's something we've got to talk about. Because in all the headlines that we see, it's so easy to get so lost and so obsessed with a word here, an opinion there, uh, someone who's a elected official or a Hollywood movie star or a performer or an athlete. And they should have space to work through their own understanding. But it takes all of us. And it doesn't matter what the issue is, whether it's balancing LGBTQ rights and religious liberty, whether it's having law and compassion when it comes uh, to dealing with immigration, uh, whatever it may be, we can get to that insight and foresight. But the path there means that we have to suspend our instant certainty, start with humility and discernment, then insight comes and foresight can be had. All right, we'll step aside for one last commercial break. Final thoughts coming up on Inside Sources here on a Monday. Stay with us on KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.